Bitches are alright. They're just a little icky. Icky. I'm a grown woman, I say icky. It's alright. You mostly hear New Yorkers complaining about pigeons, but there are many people whose love for the birds runs deep. Even former heavyweight champion Mike Tyson called pigeons his first love, having grown up surrounded by them in his Brooklyn neighborhood. Today, Tyson races pigeons. His passion for the sport even spawned a reality show on Animal Planet called Taking on Tyson. But as you'll hear on this morning's show, Pigeons have a polarizing influence on New Yorkers. You either love them or hate them. Good morning. I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Some interesting pigeon facts. Although pigeons are considered by many to be dirty and disease-ridden, there's little evidence linking pigeons directly to infections in humans. The New York City Department of Health states only contact in high exposure with pigeon droppings can pose a small health risk. Despite common perception, there is no law that prohibits pigeon feeding everywhere in New York City. That said, the Parks Department posts notices in many areas prohibiting feeding. So it's okay to feed the pigeons, as long as there are no signs saying you can't. Paul Julius Reuter founded the Reuters News Agency, which got its start using pigeons bearing news and stock prices between Berlin and Paris. Carrier pigeons were much faster than the post train. Producer Zach Hirsch went around the city asking people how they felt about the feathered creatures. New York City pigeons. Pigeons are... Pigeons are... Hmm. Yeah, pigeons are a super New York thing. They're very just like, yeah, I'm walking across the street, so what? You got two legs, oh, you got two legs, oh, 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 oh. Sometimes, like, I have to, like, jump back because, like, one is, like, coming straight towards me, so, yeah, and I don't like them. They carry diseases. I do think New York City pigeons are nasty. Probably have a lot of germs and stuff on them. Not incredibly nasty. I think uh, in France, for example, in Paris, when I am there because I am French, it's forbidden to feed the pigeons. I mean, everyone needs to eat. They, you can disgust me, but I'll feed you. One of my yoga teachers told me to walk around with bird seeds and feed the pigeons. So I'm going to go buy some bird seeds and feed the pigeons. And they're feeding them. You know, feeding the problem because the pigeons are going to come. They're going to, you know, congregate around areas with other people. And especially like with people with young children, you don't want them around your kids. Because there's so many and we have no right to kill them. So it's better at least not to feed them. Um, I think they just want to live freely. I mean, like, they you don't give them, like, a bathroom somewhere, so they have to poop wherever they want. Doing their mess on your car, that's about the most annoying thing. Walking around all over New York City, always in front of my car. But in Chinese customs, if you poop on my head, it's actually good luck. Oh, oh, pigeons flying everywhere. (laughs) 
frustrated New Yorkers deem pigeons nothing more than rats with wings. But sociologist Courtney Humphreys says there's a lot of complexity to the bird. She marveled at pigeons' feats of survival, hence the title of her book, Super Dove, How the Pigeon Took Manhattan and the World. She's with us now on the phone. Courtney, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me. Why is it that pigeons are so abundant in cities like New York City, for instance? I guess the one thing that I talk about in my book is that the reason they're even in New York is because we brought them there. So that's one answer. Um, We domesticated pigeons thousands of years ago and actually brought them with us as we traveled around the world um, for food. So they arrived and they are not native to North America. They came here in the 1600s on ships as food. They were the chicken of of their day, if you will. Right, exactly, exactly. So, you know, that's one thing. But the other reason they like to live in cities is just because it mimics their natural habitat. So pigeons in the wild actually live on cliffs, rocky cliffs often um, on the shore. And buildings basically imitate the cliffs that they call their home. So they like to live on buildings. um, And they also, they eat grain. And they've always liked to live around people because we have this you know, we eat a lot of grain ever since we began um, using agriculture. Pigeons have loved to be around us. You have said that pigeons are a perfect model for studying how the evolutionary process takes place. Why is that? Well, it's interesting because they, um, they're so diverse, actually. Um, domesticated pigeons are come in all hundreds of different breeds. Um, we don't always know about these breeds because it's sort of a specialty Um, It's called the pigeon fancy. Um, But they're actually very diverse. I mean, as diverse as, you know, a chihuahua versus a Doberman pincher. So um, there's pigeons that are small, pigeons that are big, pigeons that have crazy feathers, that have big turkey tails. You know, you name it, a pigeon looks like it. So um, Darwin actually was interested in these fancy pigeons as a model of evolution because, you know, they could track... The breeders knew exactly, you know, how these breeds had developed, and they believed that they all came from, you know, the the one species of pigeon. So it could show how this one type of bird could give rise to all of these um, really interesting forms. And so it showed how from one single origin you could get diversity. So it was a great way for him to explain how evolution might work in the wild. It's pretty amazing to me how resilient these birds are. I mean, they survive through the harshest New York City winter. Yeah, it is amazing. I mean, they're really versatile, and they live everywhere. <laughs> I mean, they they live everywhere except Antarctica, basically. In the book, you tell the story of pigeons trained to guide offensive missiles to a target by pecking at a bullseye. Now, I'll put that one in the who knew category, because who knew? Yeah, I think that's one of the things, you know, when people are very skeptical about me having written a book about pigeons. And I say, well, tell me something interesting about pigeons. I think, you know, the idea of a pigeon-guided missile is definitely the one thing that always gets everybody interested. Of course, pigeons have this amazing homing ability. How is it that they're able to consistently find their way back to a place? Really, it looks like they use a combination of things. Um, When pigeons are navigating in familiar territory, they actually seem to use, um, you know, roads and other points of navigation on the ground to kind of guide them, you know, around town. 
But if they're um, going, you know, the homing pigeons are often, when they're taken out on races, they're taken sometimes hundreds of miles away from home. And so um, it's a place they've never been to before. So in that, in that case, they actually can sense um, the um, magnetic fields um, of the Earth. They, they can use the position of the sun. They, there's actually some research that they can use smell to guide them. Um, and so it seems like they actually use a combination of things and whatever works. You refer to pigeons as super doves in the title of your book. Is that an actual term or something that you made up? Well, I actually got it from a, um, a scientific book on, on feral pigeons, which is the street pigeons that we see every day. And it's probably the only scientific book ever written about them. Um, but it was really helpful for me, and it was a, a kind of a casual term, you know, used as a joke in the book, but basically what it, what it meant to me is that these birds are extremely successful, and so I like to call them super doves because we often disparage them um, and we see them as pests, but if we think about how successful they are in the world, they're actually, you know, animal superheroes. If you think of all the animals that are, you know, going extinct or being threatened, the ones that actually do well with people uh, we can learn something from studying them, too. Let me ask you this question. Do you find that the behavior of a pigeon in New York City is any different than the behavior of a pigeon elsewhere? Well, yes. Yeah, so I, I did actually, as part of my research, I really wanted to see wild pigeons because all the pigeons that we see you know, in cities have, were domesticated and then became wild. So I actually went to Sardinia and I started, um, I, I tried to find this colony of pigeons that lives on these rocky cliffs. Um, in one part of Sardinia. And it took me a long time to find them because I, I kind of expected pigeons to be like we see them in New York, sitting around, you know, walking around, you know, eating, pecking. Um, but actually these pigeons are very different. They, they live in caves um, in the rocks, and they dart in and out almost like, you know, bats. And it was actually very difficult to, to finally see them because they are just totally different in their behavior than pigeons in cities. Courtney Humphreys, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. Courtney Humphreys is the author of Superdove, How the Pigeon Took Manhattan and the World. While pigeons are adept at surviving in many different habitats, New York City can be a dangerous place for them. Injured pigeons can be nursed back to health by rehabilitators from New York City Pigeon Rescue Central. Jennifer Dudley is a member of the organization. I recently talked with her in Washington Square Park. What are the primary reasons pigeons find themselves in distress here in New York City? Number one problem for pigeon would be string around their feet and hair around their feet. You wouldn't think so, but little pieces of, of this material, yarn, they get tangled up in the feet. And what happens is it, cuts, it eventually cuts off the circulation to the foot. And the toes will self-amputate, but the foot itself will lose its circulation and they'll lose the whole foot itself. Uh, I volunteer with an organization called the Wild Bird Fund where we take care of uh, any number of birds. How and when did you develop that interest? I think it was about four or five years ago. And in my neighbor's backyard, there was a mourning dove that had been attacked by something and it was cowered in the corner and I could see that it was bleeding from its wing. So I kind of panicked and I, I went down, I put a towel over the bird, picked it up. That's 
one of the best rescue methods, little did I know, picked it up and put it in a box and then proceeded to call 311 where they will, the city will, will not do anything for uh, pigeons. Then I went on the net and looked for pigeon help. New York City and uh, New York City Pigeon Rescue Central came up. So I uh, posted, and an ama- there was an amazing response and guidance. And I've got this morning dove to an individual rehabber, and the bone was fixed, and the the morning dove was releasable. So, and then I just started wondering, who takes care of all these birds? And it just changed my mindset. Well, one might ask that these are wild birds and they should take care of themselves. People shouldn't take care of them. Yes, but there's so much habitat destruction that goes on, and I think their interaction with people, that we have a responsibility to them. And also, how can you see a suffering animal and not do something, just walk by and say, oh, well... What do you look out for when you watch pigeons in a park? What kinds of behavior are you looking for? Are you looking for anything in particular when you observe pigeons? Mm, um, first of all, I'll look for the limping, and I'll look for uh, a hanging wing. So you're always thinking like a rescuer? Always. Jennifer, thanks so much for your time. You're welcome. My pleasure. Jennifer Dudley is a member of New York City Pigeon Rescue Central. Their website is nycprc.org. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Bodarki. This morning, we're soaring into the world of one of New York City's feathered residents, the pigeon. Pigeon flyers, a subculture of people who raise pigeons on rooftops, were traditionally of European descent. As the neighborhoods they inhabited made way for Hispanic and black residents, they started picking up the hobby too. As Colin Geralmack discovered as a graduate student, pigeon breeding forged unlikely friendships that crossed racial lines. His book, The Global Pigeon, examines the way people interact with pigeons in urban spaces. Colin is now an assistant professor of sociology and assistant professor of environmental studies at New York University. I recently talked with him about his research. I love the opening line of your book. I never paid much attention to pigeons until one defecated on me. Now, you don't hear that every day. <laughs> yeah, well, also, I should add that particularly in the realm of sociology, you don't hear this. Uh-huh, <laughs> um, I'm sure. And um, it wasn't something as a graduate student looking for a research project. Uh, I'm not a graduate student anymore, but when I was... Um, the idea of writing about animals, let alone pigeons, very much threatened to marginalize my career or derail it before it ever got started. But there I was. I was interested in urban spaces, like a lot of people are, and I started hanging out in parks to sort of, you know, I had read Jane Jacobs' The Death and Life of Great American Cities, and this was the neighborhood that she wrote about. And while I was there thinking it was going to be all about the people, uh, there was a lot of pigeons, and they were people were feeding them, and they were a major part of the streetscape, and the city had launched a campaign against them. Uh, they started issuing nuisance citations to people who were uh, feeding them and got caught. 
and there I was, one of the first times I was in this park that I wanted to write about, Father Demo Square. And one, in Greenwich Village, by the way, Greenwich for those Village, not familiar. Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And a pigeon defecated right on me as I was trying to do something else. I was trying to read who the park was dedicated to. And so, you know, one of the things that I like about doing ethnography, which is the anthropological method of observing and talking to people rather than doing statistics, is that often the path leads. What did you observe when it comes to people's day-to-day interaction with pigeons here in New York City? Pigeons are really adept at coaxing people who didn't plan on feeding them into feeding them. You're in the park with your pizza or your bagel, and they kind of strut closer to you, cock their head sideways, and have these ways of doing this until people almost unconsciously are breaking off some of their sandwich or whatever else and feeding it to them. And so the people who spontaneously feed pigeons are vast and come from all kinds of walks of life. But a lot of people's loathing may seem rational. They think they're disgusting because they're on the street and they're dirty and I'm going to get sick. And so a lot of the animosity toward them comes from that. Um, What is the reality there? I talked to a lot of epidemiologists because I got interested in human-animal disease transmission, and they would talk about bird flu, West Nile virus, SARS, and all these other things. And when I would bring up pigeons, they would just say, why are you talking to me about pigeons? They're not even on our radar. There's almost no instances of people getting sick from a casual encounter with street pigeons. Now, some people who care for them, who have coops with hundreds of birds in a small space that they don't ventilate well or clean can get certain lung infections. But it's very rare, and there's almost there's pretty much no instances of people getting sick from a street pigeon. Well, here's a sobering statistic from your book, that one pigeon can produce up to 25 pounds of droppings a year. <laughs> right. So this is the thing, and I try to be upfront about this. I mean, I'm not, I'm not here to just, you know, the main goal of the book is not to reverse stereotypes about pigeons. But what I say is, you know, the disease thing is a red herring, but the, the property damage concern is more real. I mean, that is a lot of droppings, and particularly cleaning that up is annoying and costly anywhere. But then when, in particular, when it comes to European cities who have these old historic buildings and statues that are already being worn down naturally by wind and w- rain and whatever else, this is a serious concern. And so, um, you know, I don't think that we ought to just let pigeons run wild, but I do, I do critique the way that we kind of freely use this almost this justification of disease to just kill them and trap them or what have you. And that, you know, I think we should really have a better understanding of what the real threats or concerns are. You spend time looking into how people and pigeons get along in other parts of the world, including London and Venice. Yes. What did you discover in those places? It's been a ritual to feed pigeons in both of these spaces. They actually had dedicated vendors who sold feed and people could buy it and feed the pigeons. The pigeons therefore became tame and would land on anybody who came into the square because they had learned to expect food. But when I was there, this this ritual was still happening in Piazza San Marco. And so what was really fascinating to me was I would talk to people who entered the, the, the square and they would say, oh, I've never fed pigeons before. They're rats of things. They're so disgusting. I'm not going to feed them. But then they would see everybody else feeding them and then their, their tour guide and, and, and the book that they read before they got here and the pictures they see, and the, you know, the paintings being sold all indicate that this is part of the cultural experience. And if you haven't fed the pigeons and had them land on you, you haven't experienced Piazza San Marco. So within 10 minutes, the people who swore they would never be doing this are having pigeons landing on their head. They're even laying on the ground to have the pigeons land all over them. And so what's really interesting to me about that is the way that um, the kind of cultural attachment that people could form to the birds actually preempted their 
what you would claim is instinctual loathing, that we could see that that can actually be overridden. And so it allows us to see that there's no natural way that we have to think about pigeons as being inherently a nuisance animal. You spent three years hanging out with pigeon flyers here in New York City. Now, these are people who keep pigeons up on the rooftops, right? Yes. It's almost all men and working class. And there are men who just breed pigeons, a breed called flights, and they keep 500 to seven or even 800 of them. And the idea really is just to train them in to fly in tight stocks right above the roof. They look like a swarm of locusts. And also, if other people have their pigeons up in the sky and your stock mingles with their stock, you hope that maybe you've brought home some of their birds when you bring your stock back home. They all have bands on the legs that identify the owner. And so it's kind of an informal competition amongst the men. And now a separate group of people race pigeons. And, and some I think more people are familiar with this hobby. Uh, pigeons can find their way home from somewhere they've never been up to 1,000 miles away. And so there are clubs here in New York. I followed in particular the Bronx Homing Pigeon Club. And they send their pigeons from as far away as Ohio or Virginia, and they wait on the rooftops, and the pigeons can do the 400-mile race in one day. And so they wait on the rooftops for the birds to come home. They bet some money on the side for it, you know, and, and so that's a more formal competition. You have a whole chapter dedicated to the Bronx Homing Pigeon Club. I do. And you have a passage that you're going to read for us. Yeah, I'm going to read a short passage, which is just the opening of this chapter, in which we join one of the pigeon racers while he's waiting on his rooftop. The sky felt electric as Franco Bianchi waited atop his rooftop loft for his homers to return from a 400-mile marathon. The occasion was the 14th annual Frank Viola Invitational, considered the Kentucky Derby of East Coast pigeon races. Franco had bred young birds from his finest stock in the spring, sent them on daily training tosses at 5 o'clock a.m. over the summer and fall, and gradually worked up their stamina by entering them in weekly local club races. This morning, his birds, along with over 1,500 others, were liberated from Cadiz, Ohio. If one of Franco's thoroughbreds made it home first, he stood to win $50,000. But it had been a rough racing season. Franco lost many of his pigeons in week after week of brutal storms, and he had little to show for it. It was shaping up to be a long afternoon. Strong northeast winds meant that the pigeons would be fighting their way home, and adding insult to injury, Franco's beloved Yankees were down 3-0 to zero early in an elimination playoff game against the Detroit Tigers. The weather and the baseball game had Franco on edge. Though physics dictated it would be near impossible for the birds to arrive before 5.30 p.m., we were camped on the rooftop at 4.30. Okay, I got my cigarettes, got my coffee, got my phone. His dangling cigarette poked out from his yellowed, bushy gray mustache and slurred his barely audible vestige of an Italian accent. Franco got out a chico, which is what they call a pigeon with clipped wings, that he would toss up to lure his homers back to the loft. And he held the docile beacon in his hand as he stroked it. He recovered the radio station just in time for us to hear that the Yankees were now down 4-0. to zero. Franco stared skyward, then barked, Come on, where are you? Just then, a pigeon streaked across the horizon. Franco tensed up, then jumped out of his chair and tossed his Chico. But it turned out to just be a clinker, what they call a street pigeon. The Chico fluttered back to the roof. I should stick to hunting, Franco grumbled. It's easier. At 5.45, Franco heard the dreaded chirp of his Nextel phone. Somebody got one. Franco rolled his eyes. There goes my 50000 out the window. He tried to soothe himself. We'll take second. But his phone rang again at 5.57. I don't want to answer it. His friend, Porpora, excitedly reported, Franco, we clocked. But each call that followed was like nails on a chalkboard. Marty clocked at 6.04. Delaco, too. Franco barely managed to muster an apathetic, good for you. The Yankees scored two runs in the top of the ninth, but it seemed too little too late. 
Franco became convinced that he too had no prospects, even though a $1,000 prize was guaranteed for every bird that finished better than 150th place. Now he just hoped to get a bird back the same day. The sun was setting. There were only a few precious minutes for a pigeon to come home before it would decide, no matter where it was, to go down for the night. We waited until it was pitch black, but nothing came. Not a single pigeon. The phone rang, and Franco smirked as he yelled into the receiver, Call 911! I'm going to jump! But when he heard that old man Viola won his own race, he grinned. Everybody loved Frank Viola. He turned off the radio. The Yankees lost 8-3. to Their season was over. The broadcasters were already talking about what adjustments would need to be made next year, and so was Franco. What kinds of conclusions did you reach about the individuals who are the pigeon flyers and racers here in New York City? This was originally an ethnic white, predominantly Italian activity. But the men I knew, the older men were Italian, but the younger men were Hispanic and black, largely Puerto Rican and African-American. And it took me a while to piece together what happened. And what happened is if you take the neighborhood where I lived, for instance, Bushwick, Brooklyn, it went from almost 100 percent white in 1950 to 3% white at the time that I was writing. And so it changed over. A lot of these whites went to New Jersey, other suburbs in Long Island. But for the ethnic whites who remained, pigeon keeping is a lot of work. And they always either recruited their sons or paid a neighborhood kid to help them clean the coops, bring feet up the ladder. They still needed help. So they started recruiting Puerto Rican and black boys who moved into the neighborhoods to help them on the rooftops. And now these boys grew into men and have passed it on to their kids. So you have this interesting story of cultural transmission and forming of these cross-racial relationships in neighborhoods where there was a lot of racial tension as as they changed over from white to majority-minority. And I would imagine cross-generational as well. Of course, right. I mean, it's really funny, you know. I mean, I'll give you... I mean, I actually went back to this pet shop where a lot of the guys hang out in Brooklyn just last month to give them copies of the book when it came out. And uh, there's this old-timer in there. I mean, he has to be 90. His name is Jojo, and uh, and he's Italian. And he's kind of regaling us with, with stories of the old days in the 40s and 50s. And these young uh, Puerto Rican and black men come in with tattoos, gold teeth, do-rags, and they sit down and, you know, they're just kind of nodding their head deeply as he's talking. And then the one guy says to him, wait a minute, you're the JoJo? And JoJo says, yeah, why? And he just says, props, man, props. You know, and these are the kind of interesting uh, relationships that you see form. Colin, thanks so much for coming in. My pleasure. Colin Gerald Mack is an assistant professor of sociology and assistant professor of environmental studies at New York University. His book, The Global Pigeon, is out now from the University of Chicago Press. In 2007, former Brooklyn Councilman Simka Felder introduced legislation to make feeding pigeons an offense punishable by a fine. It was met with backlash from pigeon rights activists like Anna Dove. She's the founder of the New York Bird Club, a bird rights group. The bill didn't pass, but Anna continues to defend the feral bird's right to coexist with humans in the city. I recently met her on the Upper East Side, where she lives and routinely feeds pigeons. Right now we're on 92nd Street, on pretty much on the corner of 92nd Street and 1st Avenue. Is this where you primarily come to feed pigeons? Uh, yes, I feed them on this block in uh, two different locations. How long have you been feeding pigeons in this neighborhood? I'd say about 10 years. And I've gotten, um, you know, there's a lot of animosity from people and the school and, There's uh, a school on this block. The school is right over there. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, the school is right over there. The I think we frightened the pigeons there. Are they yeah. flying around us. Yeah. Where does the animosity come from? Some children have said that they, um, they're afraid of them. And when I asked specifically, they, um, they just said they're frightened. 
Well, a lot of people, so a lot of people, Anna, as you know, refer to pigeons as flying rats. They see them as dirty birds, afraid that they're going to spread disease. Their droppings, they say, are a problem and could spread disease. Well, that's not true. Um, I don't think those are legitimate uh, issues, and I don't. They don't carry disease. What comes to mind for you when you look at pigeons? If I were to ask you, finish this sentence: a pigeon is. How would you finish it? Oh, just simply, a pigeon is a beautiful bird. I just see a beautiful bird. I like other birds too. It's not just that I just like pigeons. I'm partial to pigeons. I'm. I like all other birds. I like squirrels. I even carry、um, nuts for squirrels. I like、um, all animals. It just happens that here in New York, the pigeons are so plentiful. I have to ask you because your last name is Dove. Is that just a coincidence? No, I had actually. That's not my. I changed it legally, and now I've changed it back、um, to my original name, which is Kugelmas.、Um, Were you making a statement with that legal name change? Um, I don't really know. I didn't do it consciously. I do a lot of things, you know, as intuitively, and that was probably. Just something that I did. I didn't really think about it that much. I didn't like my name. I'd been thinking of changing it for many, many years. And when I started a bird club, I decided Kugelmoss didn't sound really good. And I had a, a white dove at the time, and I thought, "Dove, that's nice." And that was the first thing that came to mind, and I was, and I went with that. But then later, I decided、um, it was just too much trouble. My legal documents still had Kugelmoss. It was a lot of trouble to change everything, so I decided to go back to、uh, my original name. But a lot of people still refer to me as Anna Dove, and I think of myself as Anna Dove too. Anna Dove Kugelmoss is the founder of the New York Bird Club, a bird rights group. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Remember, you can listen to old episodes of the show on our website, wfuv.org/cityscape. Follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook for New York City tidbits and show previews. I'm George Bodarki. My thanks to senior producer Morlene Chin, and we want to thank producer Zach Hirsch for his contributions to this morning's show. Have a great weekend. Like a bird,